What's business development? Unlike being an accountant or a lawyer, working in business development means you often get asked, what exactly do you do? Business development can mean something completely different in every industry and at every company. And because many times we're the only ones of our kind at a company, we can struggle with the ambiguity of our own jobs. By exploring the careers of some of the brightest members of the Fernio business development community, we'll learn what this job is all about and how to do it well. And perhaps, once and for all, we can answer the age-old question, what exactly is business development? After the episode, if you'd like to learn more, or if you'd like to join a community of peers who are all pursuing a similar career journey, join us at Fernio.com. On this episode, Larry Lieberman shares what business development means to him today. After initially sharpening his skills working on deals for Lionel Richie in the 80s and in the early days of MTV. Take a listen. Hi, I'm Larry Lieberman. These days, I'm a board member at the Jed Foundation, the largest mental health advocacy group for college students and high school students around the country. And I'm also chairman of Caveat Media, a growing podcast and media production company based out of the Caveat nightclub on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Okay. I am so excited to be here speaking with you, Larry. You've had such a varied career in music and entertainment and philanthropy. Um, can you tell our listeners more of your career story? Sure. It, it's great to be here. Um, and it's funny because recently I was in New Zealand to speak at a conference. And uh, when I checked in, I received this backpack filled with all the, the show swag. And embroidered on this pack in huge letters was, was the message, change before you have to. That's the message of business development. Like many biz dev execs, my journey makes sense to me, uh, but you're definitely not likely to see it featured in a textbook on the fastest way to the C-suite, which is, which is probably good news for folks out there. It really means that there's no single acceptable path to a great career in business development. There's no school you need to go to. There's, there's no degree you need to get. There's no class you need to take. And, and definitely, there's no first job that's required to launch a really great career in business development. So uh, I had a pretty un standard undergrad experience. I, I went to Union College in Schenectady, New York. A few years later, I got my MBA. Uh, I went part-time at night at NYU Stern School of Business. And when I graduated, all my classmates went on to finance. And I didn't want to. I, I, I stuck with my business development career and stayed in the media business in that capacity. So it really all relates to my being such a big believer in doing what I love. And I just never considered finance to be my happy place. So I learned early on that when I do things I love, I succeed. And when I do things that other people want me to do, well, let's just say I squeak by. And, and for me, I love music. And ultimately, most of what I've learned about business development came from my experience in the really hyper-competitive music industry. So that's where I started my career. It's my first love. It's really um, the acknowledgement that uh, you have to be able to leverage your instincts in order to really excel at what it is you're going to do. So, you know, for me, by the time I was 17, I'd probably been to a hundred concerts. And, and at college, I did all the same things that music fans do. And, and I, my summer job was working in a nightclub here in New York where acts like Bruce Springsteen and Eric Clapton and the police played. And my summer job was working for New York's largest concert promoter. And that was all fun and games while I was in college. But, when I graduated, I had to figure out how to take that really irrelevant degree I had in economics and figure out what to do with myself. So, um, you know, through, through a series, I, I had a series of, of ridiculous sort of unpleasant jobs. And then my first real job out of school was working for Lionel Richie. And that really changed everything for me. And even getting that job with Lionel Richie was a completely different experience for me because... I didn't get the job. 
I was, I, I, someone else was selected for the job. And, and, and I interviewed and I wanted it. Um, but a week after the Lana Witchy tour started, I got a phone call from the office and they asked me if I'd come up and see them. And I was like, oh, okay. And they explained to me that the person they'd hired for the job didn't work out. And literally the guy they had hired got left at a truck stop the night before in Virginia. They'd literally thrown him off the tour bus and said, we're leaving without you, buddy. Um, so the gig for me was, and the offer was, you can have that job if you can start tonight in Philadelphia. And I said, yes, that's business development. When the opportunity is in front of you, you have to figure out how to get to yes. So working with Lionel was really my first business development job. I was hired to make sure that the tour sponsor, who was Pepsi back in those days, got full value of their deal with Lionel and to make sure that Lionel didn't have to do anything that was too inconvenient or might be counterproductive to his career. It was a great run. And then after Lionel, I spent a few more years touring with Tina Turner and Michael Jackson. And then as much fun as that was, touring became a little less desirable after I got married. I moved back to New York City and, and took a business development job at MTV. It was the late 80s and MTV was in its prime. And my role was to create new businesses that would make MTV money and also reinforce MTV's brand image. And, and it's, it's kind of hard to, to even get my arms around this or for, or for anyone to like get our arms around this anymore. But at the time, YouTube and the iPhone and, and none of that had ever even been invented. There, there was, there was no place in America cooler than MTV. So after a few years there, um, I moved on to a sister network at Viacom, uh, and became vice president of strategic planning and new business development at the sister network Comedy Central. And, and that was really the first time that the words business development were in my title. Because that's what we had to do. We were running a network that in and of itself uh, really didn't have enough going for it. It was in turnaround mode, and we were going to reinvent what Comedy Central was all about. So uh, during that time, uh, we launched brand new programming like South Park, like The Chappelle Show, The Daily Show. Um, and after nearly a decade of business development roles with Viacom... Um, I moved on really to the most challenging business development terrain there is, startups. And, and that's where I've been for the last phase of my career. Um, my very first startup was a digital music company called Music Maker. Uh, I was the 10th or 12th employee and took on the role of the president of global marketing. It was the height of the CD era, and we had the nerve to think that people would start buying music on their computers. We were able to take that company public. We raised over $100 million in our IPO. We had the best ticker symbol ever, HITS, H-I-T-S, one of my favorite. Um, but of course, eventually our luck ran out and that company closed. So my next stop from there was, was at a comic book company that we launched in, out of Bangalore, India, of all places. Uh, the idea was to start an art and animation studio in India that would provide uh, a place for the very best artists in India to create India-themed stories that we would sell in India and then in the West. It literally was outsourcing in reverse. We'd create original content in India and sell it back to America. We were really fortunate. Um, our first outside investor and the chairman of the board was Deepak Chopra. And eventually we were able to convince Richard Branson to invest creating Virgin Comics. And as chief marketing officer there, I was responsible for developing our stories into TV, film, and gaming partnerships. After that, uh, I went on to become chief marketing officer um, at a renegade digital advertising business uh, that was bought by Fox, um, a video chat business uh, later on that we grew to have 100 million users, and eventually I launched my own mobile video app that was pretty identical to TikTok, but probably five years too soon. So this year, I'm really excited to be launching a new business, 
which is Caveat Media. Caveat is a podcasting and television programming development company based on the very successful live shows we produce at Caveat NYC Nightclub on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. So, you know, for me, throughout all these business development roles at all these different ventures, I always maintained my commitment to innovation, my drive for growth, and my focus, honestly, on young adults. What's consistent about everything I've ever done is who I do it for. And it's important to know what you're great at. And for me, it's the understanding of what makes young adults tick. Um, and, and this audience continues to be the centerpiece of really what is my favorite work, which is my philanthropy. Uh, it's now more than 15 years that I've been on the board of directors of the Jed Foundation. It's uh, a relatively... Uh, unknown organization in the public space because what we do is actually provide the the guidelines and programming that universities and high schools can use to help keep their students healthier and to help protect the emotional wellness of the student bodies across this country. We are in a crisis in this country right now. More than 45,000 people killed themselves last year in America and it's an epidemic that we have to address. Uh, on a medical level, on a clinical level, and certainly one-on-one uh, with students of just about every age. So that's what keeps me going. Um, I'm more than happy um, to have been able to merge my professional world and my philanthropic worlds. I love raising money. I love raising money for my ventures. I love raising money uh, for my organizations, and I love having a huge impact on the world. That's business development. That is such an inspiring story. You have so much passion and you have such a clear uh, sense of your personal mission. I guess what I'd like to start by asking you, Larry, is because this podcast has established that there's so many different definitions of business development, it means different things to different people. Um, you yourself have had, ha- have had a lot of different titles and you've touched a lot of different aspects of, of digital media. For you personally, what is your definition of business development and what do you feel is sort of the bedrock foundation of skill sets or a mission that is needed to be effective in the role? Sure, sure. Um, you know, it's real simple for me. Business development is the willingness to go out there and walk the tightrope without a net. That is BD. And if you can embrace that and feel it in your soul, this is a role for you. Because, you know, success or, or failure um, in BD is usually determined by how well you've prepared yourself for the adventure and how much agility you can muster and, and how good a show you can put on. These are the three pillars, right? It, it's, it's agility. Um, it's, it's your appetite for the adventure and really how well can you communicate this? Because, because you have to be able to communicate to everyone involved why it is it's worth taking that walk across the tightrope. And of course, you gotta be willing to fall. Right. Right? Because we do. We do in BD. And if you're not willing to fall, then business development's a tough place to make a living. So speaking to your own experiences, you know, you mentioned the, the, um, the quote from the conference about change before you have to, and that ties in very closely with agility. Are there moments in your career where you, uh, where you wished you had abided by that? Where, you know, since, and you're talking about falling and making mistakes, are there moments where you wish that you had changed before you had to? Uh, sure. Uh, you know, we've, we've all failed. Let's lay it right out there. Let's right at the beginning of this say, yes, I've been fired. Okay. I've fired people and I've been fired. And let me tell you, both stink. Okay. Um, so change before you have to, uh, it, it applies because it's, it's so broad, right? You need to, you need to think far enough down the road to know that there are options other than the one path you're on. Really, that's business development. If I, if I had to define the two, and, and sales is not a dirty word for me at all. We, we sell everything all day long. But sort of mainstream conventional sales is the continuation of the path we are on. 
Mm. Right? It is the rocket fuel that keeps all of our businesses going. But the difference between BD and straight on sales is that BD is exploring the revenue opportunities that pass that we're not currently on. That's the big difference, right? And, you know, have I, um, you know, for me personally, I, I think I probably change I, I get restless. I change yeah. before I have to because I, I really do think far down the horizon and, and I, I'm constantly wondering what if. Yeah. And that's a real important part. You seem like the kind of person that gets up in the morning and is looking for new ideas, is thinking about the next big thing. Is that, you know, is that what it's like to be Larry Lieberman? You wake up in the morning and think about, you know, what's the next big, next big cool thing? Uh, you know, for me, I'm obsessed about what's coming next. I'm not obsessed about what's going to be cool or big. Mm. I I think I am obsessed about what's going to be different. And I'm, I've been really fortunate to be um, around people and to work with people who have really no blinders whatsoever. And 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 this, if I had one, the single most wonderful person I've ever worked with uh, is a woman named Judy McGrath, who who ran MTV for the years I was there. And and, and there were two things uh, about her that still stand out in my mind years later. One is we were just kids, and and she, she said uh, one day to us, she said, you know, you have the hardest job in the world, you guys. And we were like, what are you talking about? You know, she's like, you know, your friends go to work every day and accomplish things and do tasks. But our job at MTV is to reimagine the world. Like you have to come to work every day and have a vision for a different kind of future. It's a lot harder than just doing tasks. And, and you know, it, it stuck with me years later. And, and then, you know, Back in the day when we were all using Yahoo on our Netscape browsers, it was Judy who we were talking to. She, she said to me, she said, you know, there's this thing called Google. You should check it out. It, it doesn't look like Yahoo, but wait till you try it. It's a totally different experience. So, you know, it is, did we have any idea that Google was going to be the next big thing? Of course not. But, you know, it's a blessing to be around people who are so curious that when something different comes along, they call it to your attention. Well, then it's phenomenal. Judy McGrath is legendary, as is so many people who were leading MTV um, at a time when it was the place to be and it was associated with innovation, particularly with regards to anticipating what young people would want next. And, sure. and that now that reputation has sort of been bequeathed to a lot of uh, other newer upstarts. But, um, so we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about some of the things you worked on in MTV, but I want to go back in time a little bit to that first job, your first business development job with sure. Lionel Richie. Um, it is such a fun story because it's an example of how following one's passion can lead to an opportunity. But, um, this is, this is back in the day before LinkedIn, before Craigslist. How did you find out about the job to begin with? Um, and when you didn't get it the first time, why do you think that they reached out to you? Sure. Um, you know, I, I got to say straight out that that I don't really think that um, postings are the way that most people are going to get their business development job. I mean, I'll, I'll just lay that out there um, because there's a chemistry to matching up in a biz in a biz dev job, and that means that. It just doesn't sync with, with the normal hiring process usually. Because the folks screening, right, for BD executives and all kinds of BD jobs um, tend to be safe, right? HR people are risk management executives. That's what they do in it. You know, HR is about managing risk. And um, everybody wants to be safe when they're hiring new new town. And unfortunately, that applies to biz dev roles as well. So, um, you know, people who are hiring for biz dev execs looks for that, 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 that classic line, proven track record of success, right? Ooh, makes the, the hair on my neck stand up. It, you know, what a horrible phrase, proven track record of success, because it, it's just dreadful. Um, you know, and, and back to the point, I think I got the Lionel job because of the chemistry, um, because 
strong BD people are multidimensional. Um, and because I was articulate. And by articulate, um, it doesn't really mean speaking well. It means listening well. Right? And, and BD people have to, have to, have to listen. And I think because I was well informed, um, in the areas of pop culture and in music, um, and I, I was comfortable with things that were sort of important to Lionel and important to Pepsi at the time. Uh, and I knew a little bit of business. Um, but I really think I got the gig cause I could listen. Honestly. Um, you know, and I think the guy they hired just talked too much, right? I think that original guy they hired just wouldn't shut up. Uh, and I, and I met him years later, uh, and he was still talking too much, you know? Um, so I, I think, and, and then from there, I, I think it's important for biz dev people to, you know, maybe learn from my experience and, and open their eyes up, which is that every, ever since that first tour with Lionel Richie, every job I ever got was from a connection to a previous gig. Right. I mean, even when I worked for Lionel, um, you know, after that tour, I, 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 I worked for, I worked with Michael Jackson and, and Lionel and Michael were friends and, and Pepsi was endorsing both tours and, and, you know, things got said at meetings that I was never invited to and were way above my pay grade. And next thing you know, you get a phone call and you're on the bus with the Jacksons, right? Cause, cause that's what happens. You, you've delivered somewhere. And you become part of somebody's team. Um, and while I've had, and, and even in the intro, you know, there's probably five, six, seven different jobs in there. The reality is I've only had two different bosses, right? And, and those people have taken me with them to new ventures, or I've brought them into new ventures that I've led, mm. right? That's chemistry. So you were listening well. Um, you had earned their trust. But beyond that, you also had a sort of tricky thing to do, which is that you had to look out for the interests of the artists. Sure. But you also had Pepsi in the mix, and you needed to make sure that that relationship was mutually beneficial. Particularly when you were early in your career, um, did finding that balance come intuitively to you, to you, or did you have to learn through experience how to accommodate both parties and make everyone uh, feel good about you know, that partnership. Sure. Uh, you know, there, there's a learning curve to everything. Um, and the minute you think you're in a situation where there is no learning curve, that's where you're going to hit the wall and crash, right? So, so yes, there's a learning curve to everything. Um, yes, instincts and intuition pay, play a huge role, and they get better over time with experience. Um, I think what I really got out of touring at the time was I learned how to be a 21st century worker, whatever we call ourselves today. Um, uh, you know, it was sort of like an on-demand, always-on work environment because I was touring, so I had no office, right? Every day, I, my desk was a different desk in a different arena somewhere else in the world. Um, in those days, we didn't even have cell phones, Right. So you, you really are figuring it out with the resources you have in front of you. And, you know, the joke probably is it's MacGyver life. Right. <laughs> you, you, you make it work. I mean, one of the things I love so much about working with people from the live music business is that no matter what happens, no matter what your day looks like, no matter what's gone wrong, the doors are going to open at seven o'clock and at eight o'clock or eight fifteen, the music's going to begin. Period. Okay. So it really doesn't matter what you're looking at at 11 a.m. or 2 p.m. or whatever. You've got to figure it out because 20,000 people are going to walk into that room at 7 p.m. And it's your job to give them a once in a lifetime experience. That's the magic of uh, the entertainment business. And that's a lot of the magic that comes to BD because it's prize and delight, right? Concerts are so wonderful because the audience is delighted and they're surprised and they're, they, they love the experience they have. And it builds an affinity and a connection that I've really taken with me on, uh, on my BD career. Mm. Um, and I'm sure that can-do attitude served you well, even in the corporate world, when you moved uh, on to MTV. I, and, I, and I think the truth is it can serve you very well in the corporate world 
or if it's a mismatch, mm. you know, it, it can undercut you because uh, there there's no five year plan to figuring out how to put on a show at seven p.m. Right? It, the the two cycles don't always match, and there's there's an enormous amount of pressure uh, on all of us to to sync the two worlds because Pepsi takes a year to react, and Lionel will make a decision in ninety seconds. Mm. Right. The two worlds need to intermingle, and and I think you know, uh, you know, getting everyone to agree becomes a real priority. Yeah, you have to be quick on your feet. Um, jumping into your days at MTV, um, I'm sure it must have been utopia for someone who loves music and entertainment. They were right in their heyday. Um, did you show up at MTV's door with a whole list of ideas in your head of how to grow the business or um, businesses you wanted to acquire? Or did you actually have to do research or talk to people or do thought work in order to do what they wanted you to do and grow the business and, and start new ventures? Sure. I mean, I, I think any new, um, new career opportunity is probably a merger of both um, things you bring to the role based on your past experience and, and things you invent. Um, and let me, uh, let me even start it. Like, if you want to work at a, any particular company, um, it's probably full already, right? The companies we want to work at are full. Um, you know, and, and one of the examples I, I tell people is like, if you love search and you think you want to go work at Google, well, they're not going to hire you because they got that search thing covered. Okay. But if you want to go work at Google, Figure out what they should be doing that they're not currently doing and see if there's a match. And that's really the connection I made at MTV. Mm-hmm. What they were looking for was someone who understood sort of in a, in a, in a 360 degree way what music life and entertainment lifestyle was for a young adult. And it wasn't just watching television. For me to come in, it was really easy to say, well, you know, it's, it includes the live event experience, and let's start producing MTV-sponsored tours, right? Um, in, the, in those days, there was a show on MTV called Club MTV, and, and it was it was American Bandstand MTV style. But you know, I, you know, I came and said, well, let's take you know five or six of the really hot bands from Club MTV who really were sort of one-hit wonders. I mean, and alone couldn't tour, but you put enough of them together, all of a sudden you've got this club MTV tour and off it goes, or the Headbanger Ball tour with heavy metal backs and, and the Yo! MTV Raps tour. And, and we took Remote Control, which is a great game show from a hundred years ago, and, and took that out on the road with, with Adam Sandler and all the rest of them, and Colin Quinn and the rest of them. Um, so I came with, with, um, a live event experience and enough relationships and, and, and understanding of what went on in live event world, that that was a really easy component to bring. And of course, then the, the merchandising and the apparel that goes with the lifestyle and all that. Um, and, and really, my, my original pitch to MTV, and, it, and it's probably valid in today's world, was a giant manila envelope I sent to Tom Freston, who was the chairman. And, and I'd been working on a on a campaign to sell artifacts from the original Woodstock Festival, which from, had been 20 years prior. And uh, we had made these amazing ads that were relevant to uh, an MTV viewer. And it was like pictures of the crowd, and we'd circle some guy out, and the headline was, that's my dad. You know, and, and, and you know, the other headline was, you know, my mother wouldn't let me go. And, Stuff like that about Woodstock. And, and, you know, I shared my work in an old school paper mock-up kind of way with Tom Freston. And, and then I got a phone call. So. That's really, um, you know, a great illustration of um, all the principles that you mentioned. And also just a, that creative engine and that initiative that, that pays off. Um, I think then I'll ask maybe a broader question around... BD, which is that I have met BD executives that have a banking and background in investment banking and consulting. And then there's also people in BD that have, that come up through a more creative path. Um, so I'm curious the degree to which you think that doing great deals is a contingent upon 
you know, robust methodical analysis versus a gut feel and a creativity, or if you feel that it is an expansive enough space that it allows room for for both approaches. Sure. I, you know, I, I think what you have to do is make someone stop dead in their tracks and say, wow, I haven't thought of that. And personally, I tend to do that more creatively than I do financially or structurally. But it works the same way whether you're pitching an idea on on its financial merits or on its creative merits, on its brand building merits. You, you, you really have to pitch someone with an idea that's going to make them stop dead in their tracks. And when you can do that, that's when you can make history, right? When, when, when Comedy Central bought South Park, right? Um, and, and the show was pitched to us. The only reason Comedy Central was able to buy it was because every other network on the planet passed. Wow. Okay. We didn't have any more money than anybody else. We had, you know, among the lowest ratings of any network at the time, there was no reason except for an incredible executive team led in those days by Doug Herzog, who, who, is is again one of the most fantastic people I've ever worked with, and and working for Doug, it, it was him who said, "Hey, we're the funny network, right? This is funny. I know HBO's past. I know everyone else's past, but our job is to be the funny network, and this is funny. Go figure it out." And, and Doug really brought that in for us and, and, and made us understand in a business development kind of way that we could have kept being the network that Comedy Central had been and stay on the path it was on, getting negligible ratings, or we could do some creative business development and did, pick up South Park. Did you know then when you had seen South Park that it would, did, was there any inkling that it would become the cultural touchstone that it is? You know, you, you both always have an inkling and never have an inkling. The, no. the truth is, we watched that five minute trailer of Jesus coming down from heaven to beat the crap out of Santa in retribution for, for spoiling the spirit of Christmas. <laughs> and, 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 and it, it's, it's, outrageous and also the funniest five minutes of video we've ever seen. So, uh, and then you meet Trey and Matt and, and, and they are uh, as brilliant creators as have ever been, been born. Yeah. And, and you say, yeah, this is, we have to do this. And frankly, you learn to get the heck out of their way, right? There are, there are certain things in business where you want to push down the, the, the tube of conformity and then there's Trey and Matt. Yeah. Let them do what they do. And now that we have Book of Mormon, so it's, the, it's, the, it's potentially the funniest two hours of your life, right? <laughs> I, you know, yeah. It's made its mark on the culture. Yeah. Um, so after you know being a part of that at MTV and, and Comedy Central and bringing those ideas to fruition, uh, you made the decision to leave the comforts of the uh, the safe comforts of that corporate life, and mm-hmm. you. Uh, went on to be an entrepreneur or take part in entrepreneurial activities. Uh, what catalyzed your decision to do that? And how did you go about deciding, you know, what ideas you wanted to throw your, your lot behind? Sure. Um, you know, a, a bunch of things come together. It's always going to be that way with us. You have to see the opportunity and, and see what it means to you personally. Um, and listen, I'll, I'll be perfectly vulgar. Um, it was the dot-com rush, and among the things that made me want to go to Music Maker and build this company was the idea that we could make a lot of money, mm. okay? Um, you know, I, I think what's lost in this mix a little bit is that, you know, when I joined MTV, I had the greatest job in the world. I knew that. And then while I was there, my son was born, and I had my first, my wife and I had our first child, and all I wanted to do was move downstairs and work at Nickelodeon, right? Yeah. Like, wow, this is really stupid. It's all about the kids. Let's go. Let's go there. So, um, you know, part of uh, of developing your life and the journey we all go on, uh, for me at some point was, wow, let, let's, you know, you're only going to make so much as a salary guy. Um, 
but we have the vision to do so much more. Um, that was part of it. It was my music sweet spot. Um, the head of the company was someone I'd worked with at MTV. He'd been the president of BMG. Um, and, and for straight out brilliance, this guy, Raju Puthakarai, um, is the smartest man I've ever had the good fortune to work with. Um, and he was involved. Uh, it, it was just, and, and it was music and it was a great role. So it all came together. Um, and it was fantastic. So, so I took the startup leap at a time when, you know, Viacom was just a wonderful place to work and I loved the people I worked with. So it was, it was, it was a, it was a whole new experience for me to go from the, the security and safety of, of multiple floors with lots of departments and, and all kinds of support to a startup. It's a challenge. How many people were at Music Maker when you joined? Uh, you know, I got there. I was probably employee, you know, 10 or 12. It was, yeah. you know, it was working out of boxes. There were, <laughs> um, you know, our desks for a while were FedEx boxes. Really? You know, that we, that we put on our lap. Um, you know, and, and then it, it came together and it was really exciting. And, and it continued to be that great biz dev role because digital music was a thing. Um, or a discussion of a thing at the time, but no one had a connection that would make it fast enough to actually download music. So literally what Music Maker's business was is you'd pick the songs you want in the order you want them, and we'd burn them on a CD and mail them to you. That's how long ago this was. Um, but we were able to tell the story. Yeah. Um, and, and, a, and a strong brand is a story well told. And for us, in order to get access to music, what we were able to do was create a whole new product, which was your own version of a band's greatest hits, right? We would take all the music from The Who and you could choose the Who songs that you wanted in the order you wanted it. You were ahead of Steve Jobs. Yeah, we were, you know, we, we, we were pre-iTunes. I, I yeah. wish, I, you know, um, who knows? It was a good time. It was a really, really great time. Well, well, along those lines, that was such an interesting time for the industry. You know, all the record companies were playing lawsuit whack-a-mole with yeah. the pirate with the piracy groups and Napster. Looking back in hindsight, um, it sounds like it was a great brand. But looking back in hindsight, you know, what do you what do you feel that that company um, got right versus got wrong? Oh, um, sure. You know, I, I it was the greatest opportunity for me to learn. That if you think there's a thousand ways that a company can fail, there's a hundred thousand ways a company can fail. And nothing substitutes experience because we had all the money in the world. Uh, we had incredible talent. Um, and, you know, we hit a wall because at one point in our evolution, Napster was invented. Digital music became a dirty word. And the people, the record companies who owned music refused to license us any more music because digital music was an evil thing. Right? It was just, you know, yeah. a bad thing. You know, it's like running a gas station and, and no one will sell you, you know, fuel to put in your pump. Well, you were ahead of your time. Um, and yet it did not keep you from, um, staying with startups and, and join, and staying on with startups. Uh, the, the comic company, Virgin Comics, was fascinating. I had not, I don't know that much about the comic book industry in India, and I don't know if our listeners do either. Did you know Deepak Chopra and Richard Branson ahead of time, or did you meet each other through uh, the venture? I, I, knew, I knew neither pre- previously. Um, it was um, a venture, again, that Raju Puthkarai was involved with. Uh, Raju had been born in India um, and had been uh, a successful entertainment executive here uh, and has a son who is just a marvelous storyteller and, and, and one of the great authorities on, uh, uh, in graphic novels. Um, and through, you know, a long set of circumstances, it was like, hey, you know, it was like, go to India and start a comic book company and see what, see what'll happen. And, uh, uh, the beauty was it, it, it took no time and he was so good that he became the Marvel and DC licensee in India. For the very first time, bringing licensed editions of characters like Superman and Spider-Man and Batman to a billion people, right? The overwhelming majority of whom speak English, but we also translated into local languages. I mean, it was this marvelous, marvelous venture. And, and then 
grew into this original content experience where let's create stories. Um, originally, our first stories were based on on, on Indian mythology in, in a totally reimagined way. That's such a rich feel to mine between yeah. Ramayana and all that myth-making. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's a rich area to go into. Yeah. Oh, endless. It, it's endless. You know, I, I thought reading... You know, Heart of Darkness in college prepared me for some of these storytellings, and none of it did. And and as hard as we worked, um, I think I probably put more hours into into reading the mythologies uh, than even to to the work itself. It was great. Yeah. Well, and it's a huge market, so maybe our, the next Avengers franchise will. Uh, right, but I mean, it's a great together. example of how things come together and how yeah. in business development you've you've got to take the blinders off and be open minded, yeah. be, because it was a time in India where Richard Branson was on TV in India, like rappelling down the side of a building in Mumbai because he was inaugurating service for 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 Virg, one of the Virgin Airlines between London and Mumbai. It was some crazy thing, and he's on TV, and it was just like you know. He's crazy, and we're crazy, and and maybe we can be crazy together, and and that's really what led to that. Some cold emails. I think maybe we could be crazy together. Should be another uh, tentative uh, <laughs> business development. Uh, comic books are seem like on the surface they could be quite different from music, which would could be quite different from the other mediums that you'd been in. You and you've also touched ad tech and gaming and. Um, almost got ahead of the, the TikTok crowd. These are so many different kinds of technologies. Did you feel like you were starting from scratch each time or because you were in the business of attracting eyeballs that it was a very easy learning curve to become acquainted with, uh, with these different technologies and different media? I mean, I think the, the, the lesson applies really broadly to BD folks. If you want to continue learning, there's a great future for you in BD. But if you feel like you've learned all you want to learn, BD's not a place you're going to be successful because great BD is about taking one plus one plus one and making 15, right? So one you may bring with you, the second one you're going to have to learn, and the third one you're going to have to get from a partner, right? Those are the really the three pieces. What do you bring with you? What does your partner have? And what can you learn to make the connective tissue? That's business development, mm. right? That's really it. And if what you know has no uh, connectivity to the target you're looking for or you're looking at, might be time to look differently and retwist all this and, and find even more outrageous partners. I mean, it's, it's about partnership, yeah. right? There used to be a great line, advertising is the cost of being boring. Okay? <laughs> yeah. Because if you are not boring, if you are so friggin' clever that people go, wow, what a great idea, that's business development. Yeah. Well, and, you know, over the last decade or so, you know, Viacom, MTV, which used to be on the cutting edge of anticipating where the, you know, where the youth was going, you know, has got some flack for um, putting a lot of its bets in advertising and not the, you know, a lot of the same advertising they were doing rather than um, the newer, the smaller screens where its audience was going. Now, when you look around at the landscape, do you have thoughts on, who the innovators are right now? Are there any companies that you have your eye on that are really exciting to you that are um, that have adopted that mindset um, that you know that in the earlier days was owned by see, the the Comedy Centrals of the world? Sure, sure. Uh, you know, it's really a great time to be in New York. Uh, I, I'm really excited um, to have stayed here um, because where there is. Um, young people and where there's interaction, discussion, that we've got a great collaborative environment going on here in New York. Um, I see it every, every night at Caveat, right? Where, where we've got great creators and great scientists and great historians coming together to, to mix things up in, a, in ways that we'd never thought before, right? Like the, trying to explain that Caveat's a nightclub where what is on stage is probably true, right? Like, like it's a commitment to integrating science and technology uh, and history. I mean, our uh, one of our podcasts these days is called "Nevertheless, She Existed." Right? It's the most wonderful 
history podcast. What could be more boring? Let's listen to a podcast about history. No, you run screaming from the room. But nevertheless, she existed is literally these profiles of women who have changed the world. And the only reason we don't know about these women is because men wrote hit the history books. Right? And, and it's just so important for us to remember that we can't help but see the world through the lens of those who are providing the information to us. And, you know, you've got thousands of years of history written by men. Things get left out. Yeah. Right. And it just, it, it so nevertheless, she existed, I think, is just a, a, a perfect example of the way things get mixed up in New York. I think I'll, I'll close with the work that you do in philanthropy, sure. because you had spoken about how important it is to you and also how uh, how integrated it is with your BD career, particularly with regards to fundraising. So if you could maybe speak a little bit more about that, how you got involved in philanthropy and um, and returning to the point on how sort of harmonized those worlds are. You know, are there things that are slightly different when you're fundraising on behalf of an organization than it would be if you were making a pitch, you know, to a partner? Sure, sure. I, I, you know, first of all, my work in philanthropy, part of what's so rewarding about it for me is that it's always work that I want to do. And if you go back, we talked earlier about how I haven't had a lot of different bosses, right? I work with a lot of the same people. Um, but the things that are really important to me personally, I've reached out on my own to become involved with these philanthropies. And it's very empowering um, for anyone to actually spend some time and get to know who you are and what's important to you. And for, for me personally, the pain and suffering which young adults go through, which more often is physical, which is more often is emotional than physical, right? That, that, um, you know, as, as a teen, you're, you're, you can be, you're likely to be perfectly healthy. Um, but unfortunately, the depth of anxiety and depression and other mental health issues, you know, fully half of all young adults suffer from mental health needs every year that are so severe they can't function. And for me to watch and do nothing while the audience that's so important to me struggles is just unacceptable. And, and that's why I chose to lean in and get involved. And, and I reviewed dozens of different mental health organizations before I found the Jed Foundation mm. and, and chose to get involved there. What, what made them special or what differentiated them from other mental health organizations at the time? You know, the real difference at JED is that the advice and guidance that JED gives universities and high schools is, is clinically tested. It's very actionable. Um, I actually got to them um, because of some situations at NYU where I had been a graduate student. And it was there that I discovered that rather than say, really, you should be doing something, JED had specific things that universities should be doing to reduce the risk of suicide on campus. And maybe the easiest example of that is eliminating and reducing the means of suicide, which is as simple as taking, changing the rods from which the clothing hangs in our closets because young adults were hanging themselves from the closet rod in their dorm rooms. Wow. And if the rod was just changed, so it wouldn't hold the weight, the means would be eliminated. And if rooftop doors were locked, and if areas were fenced, you know, th removing the means of suicide is one of the single most effective ways of, of stopping suicide. Because especially in young people, it, it's so impulsive that it, it gives someone who's struggling just one more chance mm. to reach out and, and get care. Um, and with all the research and work that Jed's done over the years, the, what we've really come to learn now is that students helping their peers and, and identifying trouble spots in their peers and encouraging them to get help and reducing the stigma, that's what's really changed over the last decade. And now students really are working and more aware to, uh, to look out for their friends. And that's a big deal. Yeah. So, um, you know, so for me... Um, 
getting involved with philanthropy meant identifying an organization that just like in business had a real impact right and yeah. and and had a tangible result that they could you know speak to their as a result of their work um and then yeah you know raising money for 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 a charity is a lot like bizdev right you you tell a really impassioned story you show the evidence um you present a hypothesis of what an extra gift could do and then you go and execute on it it's it's really similar and it's a hundred times more rewarding yeah, it, it sounds like you have made so much impact and you've been there for a substantial period of time. So it's truly, you know, a relationship that has been well cultivated over over the years. It's my second family. Yeah. You know, and, and it's great to have that. Yeah. Um, it has been so much fun to talk to you. I feel like you have said so many things that could inspire our listeners and, and so many things that they could learn from our career. Um it, you know, thinking about those pictures you sent to Tom Freston and the Woodstock, do you th- is there anything that's today's Woodstock? You know, Coachella? Do you think there's any kind of anything that's big enough to be the equivalent of that today? You know, it's terrible to say, but I think I think today's Woodstock is, is Twitch. Probably. Right. And I, 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 the, the real, you know, the real place where we got caught flat-footed at Viacom was our mantra, which was, "Don't try this at home." leave the funny to us. Mm. I mean, we literally said that. And, and then one day, a decade ago, I saw someone drop a Mentos into a Diet Coke. And I thought that was the funniest thing I'd ever seen. And, and it's like, wow, you know, what's changed in this world and, and why we have to change is because in our day, in a, in a you know, a, a television-only universe, people didn't have access to become creators and the bar was really high and yeah the creative was was presumably better but now the format's changed and and just we we've proven you know andy warhol's proven it's true anyone can be famous for 15 minutes anyone can be funny for 45 seconds it's a lot harder to run a network sure but it's not the only way to entertain people today yeah it's a diy world uh thank you so much larry it's been great speaking with you Thank you for having me. This is great.